This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello and welcome to the latest Bottom Line podcast from the Blood Red channel with myself, Matt Addison, and our business and football writer, Dave Powell. This is the third episode of the show with the first one on Redbird Capital, Jerry Cardinal and LeBron James. The second one was on the European Super League, of course, with Kieran Maguire. This episode, though, is with a different guest, this time a European football executive and investor, Jordan Gardner, who's got roles with Swansea City and Dundalk, as well as Danish Super League side, Helsingborg. Jordan, welcome to the podcast. It's been an absolutely crazy week for all of us, and I'm sure it's been no different for yourself. Yes, yes, it has. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about this topic because uh, it is it is fascinating, not necessarily in a good way, but it, it's an interesting topic, that's for sure. Yeah, I suppose we should sort of start by clarifying your position on the European Super League. I mean, as this all sort of began to to unfold, what were what were you thinking? Was was this a a big shock to you? And and, and what were your sort of initial thoughts on it? Uh, no, I mean it's not surprising. Obviously, there's been discussions kind of on and off on this topic for a number of years now, and uh, certainly having uh, an American mindset, knowing the way American investors think, you, you had to think that most of these bigger clubs eventually were going to continue to try to get a bigger slice of the pie and capture the revenue themselves. So it didn't surprise me. I think what surprised me was the the rollout in terms of the just lack of foresight and strategy and PR. Uh, you know, I was just reading in the New York Times, which again, not surprising, is how many of these owners were just kind of hiding behind. They weren't even making statements for right off the bat, but they were just completely uh, absent from a narrative perspective. So um, that really surprised me. I mean, you have some some smart people uh, with a lot of money owning some big clubs, including Liverpool, who uh, didn't really seem to think this out very, very uh, strategically. And so I think that's what surprised me and a lot of people more than anything. I suppose the the thing for me is that, as you say, it, it sort of came about in a way that didn't seem to be particularly well thought out or well planned. And yet this has been in the pipeline clearly for at least months, if not longer, maybe years even for some of these clubs. For clubs of Manchester United and Liverpool and Real Madrid standing, for, for it to sort of come across in such a, a shambolic way and fall apart really within 48 hours, why do you think that was? How How on earth can these big clubs and these big organizations be that disorganized? Well, I think right off the bat, I think most people assume that these bigger clubs and organizations are extremely well run because they have huge amounts of revenue and have very wealthy owners. And uh, you guys might have noticed this by now, but that's just not true. I think a lot of these clubs are really poorly run. Uh, it's very ego driven, as you've seen by some of the comments coming out of the, you know, Fiorentino and uh, the guy from Juventus. Like, you know, not every club by any stretch, and I think Liverpool is maybe the exception because it's been a reasonably well-run club. I think, you know, I think the Henry family and FSG is presumably, from my perspective, done a pretty good job until this misstep. Um, but I think, I think this whole situation has exposed the fact that these clubs are just poorly run. I mean, I think it started certainly the conversation with Barcelona and the huge amount of debt that they had six months ago, leading into this. Um, you know, to answer your question. You know, my sense is that you had a couple of clubs really pushing this really hard and it, it brought a lot of other clubs kind of just felt like, look, we don't want to get left out. Of course, the potential to increase the amount of revenue coming in is something that's always going to be attractive to investors. And so they said, hey, we have to get on this this boat while it's leaving the shore quickly. Uh, that's crazy to me. I mean, this is such a monumental decision and a monumental plan that you I mean, if it was up to me, what I would have done is 
you'd have to have a multi-year strategy. You'd have to have complete contingency planning, understanding that, okay, there's going to be massive backlash from the fans, from the politicians, from the supporters. This is how we're going to deal with all of that, right? This is what our narrative is going to be. And they just came out, you know, Fiorentino came out with some just crazy, crazy interviews and quotes and everyone else was silent. And uh, I I don't know. I don't know how you do that and how you expect to have success. It, It was crazy. The whole thing was crazy. The buy-in of, of fans is, is what's kind of crucial to to all this. I mean, FSG have been in place now for it's over a decade, isn't it? And, and they would have in that time. You think there's ample time to have surrounded themselves with people that would have known that this would have been a, a huge miscalculation on their part to not engage fans. Why do you think they didn't? Is it because they knew already that they wouldn't have um, got the support required, or was it simply because it, it's an oversight on, on on behalf of these clubs? I think the clubs vastly underestimated the pushback. My guess, again, I'm not in the room for these conversations, but my guess is they said, oh, of course there's going to be pushback, the fans. I think a lot of these ownership groups massively underestimate the, uh, uh, what's the right word, the backlash and the ability to enact change from the supporters. Not to say, look, I'm not necessarily a supporter of 50 plus one. I'm not necessarily a supporter of fan ownership. But I think at the end of the day, these fans are so emotionally attached to your product, right, your club, Uh, I think a lot of owners, particularly foreign owners, not just American, but a lot of these clubs in the 12 or foreign ownership groups, I think they underestimated that piece of the puzzle. Um, So I I, I don't know in terms of like, why didn't someone in the room at these clubs tell them that this is a bad idea, or at least the launch was a bad idea? I mean, from my perspective, you have very wealthy individuals that like to surround themselves with people who reinforce their worldviews, unfortunately, and this is a generalization, but... um, you don't see a lot of kind of more progressive thinking in a lot of these organizations. It's not just necessarily in European football, but it's across the board in the real world and in other sports as well. Um, so I think it's it's difficult to come to an organization and have someone tell Stan Kroenke that this is a bad idea when Stan Kroenke is the one signing your checks and is the one worth $8 billion, right? So I don't think that's how an organization should be run, but that's just the world we live in. Um, so that's what I would say. I think in terms of some of these clubs, you look at, say, Real Madrid and, and Barcelona, if you were to try and spin it as generously as possible, you could argue that they're in a pretty big amount of debt. Maybe they sort of needed it a little bit more. I think it's it's harder to understand maybe with the English clubs, certainly sort of Manchester City, you'd pick out as an example of certainly being a club that, that doesn't need any more money. They're certainly very, very wealthy to begin with. If it wasn't to do with needing the money, can we only assume that this was about greed and about sort of maximizing what they can squeeze out of these clubs. Yeah, I think that definitely was a factor. I mean, you you can't downplay the fact that ego is a factor, right? If you're Manchester City and you're not participating in this new top of the line global competition with the biggest and best clubs in the world, I think you're kind of sitting there saying, well, who are we as a club? We, We see ourselves as the biggest and best footballing club and organization in the world. So you're right. I don't think for an organization like that, it's purely necessarily financially driven, although also can't underestimate the amount of greed and pure financial uh, focus from some of these groups, even if they have a lot of money. I mean, look at the comments coming out of these clubs in Spain and some of these clubs saying, you know, we're going to we're uh, we're going to die without the Super League of money. And we're going to we, you know, we need more money. Meantime, they're spending like 150, 200 percent of their uh, revenue on player wages like they what they want to do is they don't want to make the hard decisions to make, you know, keep costs under control and they just want to keep getting money in. And it's just like anyone with a brain looks at that and says, that's crazy. Like, I don't understand. So I don't, 
I don't think we're dealing with super rational actors, unfortunately. Um, and that's, I think the problem is we're trying to kind of dissect, all of us are trying to dissect why this happened, what did they do? But a lot of the decisions are emotional, a lot of the decisions are ego. In terms of, of the pure economics of it, is it a very rational decision? I know you say there's a lot of, of emotion that have come into this, but you know, if you're Manchester United and, and Liverpool to take as an example, they could earn sort of three or four times the revenues what they're earning now. Was that purely a rational thing that they would argue, well, if anybody had the, the opportunity to sort of triple or, or quadruple their earnings, they'd probably think about it, even though obviously the numbers are on a, a different scale to the masses. Yes, they would argue that. And that's probably true, right? I mean, I think if uh, you know someone approached Crystal Palace and said, here's a 3x check on your TV revenue, they'd be like, okay, cool, let's let's talk, right? I, don't, I, I think it is certainly maybe a bit disingenuous for other clubs to come out and saying we wouldn't do this. To be fair, though, I mean, a lot of the German clubs and the French clubs did presumably reject this. So um, I think the problem is the numbers looked good on a piece of paper. Um, the money coming out of JP Morgan, again, everyone has to remember that's debt, right? That's not a cash, that's not cash, right? That was leveraging debt on future media rights. So the question is, where was the media rights coming from? I think once you saw the amount of pushback come off the bat, you had Amazon and some, you know, I think BT came out immediately and said, we're not interested in this. So once that happened, they're really in trouble. So I think, yes, on a piece of paper, of course, increased revenue is going to be interesting, but where was that money actually coming from? Did they have a television media rights partner lined up to actually fulfill that amount of money? Because if they didn't, then it's all smoke and mirrors, right? And in terms of the actual football itself, then I know you're a, a minority stakeholder at Swansea. If the European Super League had happened, what impact would that have had on, say, the championship clubs or even the rest of the Premier League clubs? This wasn't just a, a decision that would impact the big six in England. It would yeah. sort of trickle down and, and impact everybody else as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest issue that I saw was the, you know, devaluing domestic leagues. And, you know, certainly if you devalue the importance of the Premier League, whether that's, um, you know, some of the bigger clubs just not putting A-level squads in for every match or potentially some of the Super League clubs not even participating in the Premier League anymore, then you're looking at a massive devaluation of the media rights in British football, right? And then that trickles down, right, saying, okay, cool. Uh, instead of getting 100 million pounds per club, we're getting 40 or 50, and all of a sudden the model just blows up then. So I think it was it's really hard to tell in terms of we didn't know how it was going to play out in terms of how this was going to affect domestic football, um, but it had a sense anything that devalues the domestic product is going to hurt all clubs up and down the food chain. Same with you know the, the selling of players, obviously media rights. It, it, it all creates kind of a trickle-down domino effect, which is really problematic. I think that sort of plays into this idea that, you know, if – these the big six in in the Premier League, for example, would be, you know, potentially sort of uh, harmed by the Premier League, who could ban them from future competitions and, and stuff like that. That kind of idea of punishing them in that regard doesn't really make a great deal of sense to me because it sort of falls into the same category as, as what you're talking about there. If you take the top six out of of the Premier League, it it doesn't have the same appeal it doesn't have the finances which is of course the exact reason that the big six took this chance in the first place i think that's the leverage proposition that the big six clubs thought they had they said look they, they can't kick us out right they need us without us the television deal is worth a third of what it is if that right um so i think that's what they they maybe overplayed their hand thinking the amount of leverage they had what's really interesting now is if i'm another if i'm one of those other 14 clubs i'm now saying I have the leverage now when we negotiate our domestic rights and our rights. Cause like, look, you guys want to go form your own league? Like, go ahead, go, go for it. How did that work out last time for you? So I think it's, it's really interesting how the leverage proposition, I think 
switched a little bit. Of course, the biggest clubs and the biggest brands in these leagues are always going to have a certain amount of power and leverage. That's not changing. Um, but I do think this misstep has changed the calculus a little bit. Do you think, Jordan, that um, there's been much made in, in the past couple of days, and I think a lot of that's done on emotion, isn't it, about people wanting to reclaim football, etc., and it was seen as a, a major victory for, for fan power. And, what, and ha- while, yes, the the strength of feeling um, kind of what probably would have spooked a number of potential commercial partners and broadcasters. Um, do you do you think there's, there is simply too much to do and the game has gone too far um, for the likes of Spain, um, England and Italy to, to ever be able to contemplate some kind of Germany model where whereby the fans are able to have a, a casting vote and have more say in the direction of their club? I don't think it would ever go as far as a complete 50 plus one type model. I could see a models coming out where a certain percentage of equity and maybe a certain percentage of big picture decision-making might have to be owned by the fans. You know, Swansea is owned by a minority stake and a supporters trust. You know, they don't, I think they have a board seat. I don't know. Again, I'm just an LP, you know, a small shareholder, but it could be a situation where the fans have a veto right on any huge decisions like leaving your domestic competition, even if you were allowed to do that. I don't know. I don't see the appetite now uh, for a full 50 plus one model. I mean, for me personally, I mean, a lot of German clubs are well run, but I think people forget that a lot of German clubs are horribly run as well. And they're backed by wealthy individuals, just like the clubs in the other countries are. It just so happens it's a slightly different structure. So look, I don't, the, the problem I have when I have this conversation with people is I say, look, I don't think fans should know clubs. They're not making rational decisions. They're making decisions on emotion, right? You, you know, do you think fans should be able to make a decision on a transfer market, right? You see things that happen on message boards and on social media. Like, of course, those people shouldn't be making financially decisions. But the problem with that argument is there's people in my position at other clubs, uh, very wealthy individuals who make just as bad decisions in the current structure. So you know, I guess my answer is there's got to be some sort of middle ground where the fans can maintain the history and the culture and make sure that uh, the system that they love and that they support isn't thrown out while also making sure these clubs are still run efficiently and well, which they currently aren't, unfortunately. As a U.S. In- investor yourself, Jordan, do you think the narrative has is, is, is kind of been slightly unfair in the past few days because it's been seen as um, there's been Henry Cronkie and, um, and the Glazers as, as kind of wanting this move forward to a Super League because it almost creates that element of, of kind of an NFL structure whereby there's guaranteed participation every year um, and th- there is more security that comes with that, isn't there? And, and they were also talking about collective bargaining agreements and, and, and things like that. So do you think that was always part and parcel of it or do, or do you think it's a, a case of people who just unfairly linked those two things? I'm going to be honest. I think the narrative has been reasonably fair. I think you have American investors who have come in, at least in this case, and are trying to reshape the game in Europe in an American model. And I understand why they want to do that, right? They want to create a model that's more financially sustainable, right? Things like salary caps and things like, um, you know, more tele- you know, skewing more television revenue and eliminating promotion relegation and, you know, de-risking your investment, I think are all of an American mindset. And from a pure investor standpoint, they make sense, right? From an investor standpoint, the problem that these guys have is, you know, again, I've written about this on that sports pro article. It's like, if you're just in this for the money, like hundred percent, all you care about is the money. Like you should not be in this. I mean, come on, there's better ways to spend your money. You guys know the finances of football clubs. Like this is a really hard business. Like you got to be passionate about it. There has to be more to it. Yes. People wouldn't get involved if you couldn't find ways to get a return on your investment. That's like, of course, why people like myself are involved, but there's got to be other things to it. And I think that to me, 
should be in the narrative more so than, oh, it's just greedy Americans that want all the money. And to be fair, it's not just Americans, right? You, Chinese, Russians, there's other you know, Middle East dudes. There's other guys in those groups that are, have this similar mindset, but it should be much more about like, you know, how do we create a model that actually makes sense? How do we put these clubs to a position where they can make better decisions? Less about how do we just blow up the system so it looks like what we know and it can make things easier for us, right? The whole point of a salary cap and de-risking your investment is so you don't make bad decisions, right? So you as Barcelona, don't spend over the amount of money you have. Like, guess what? You don't need a salary cap to do that. Just don't do it, right? And I realize people in this business, that's like like talking past them because they don't they can't help themselves. But it really comes down to these dudes making individual better decisions, whether there's a structure in place or not. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. We've almost seen that today, haven't we? I mean, Real Madrid have just, it looked like they're in the process of signing you know, David, David Alaba from Bayern Munich on a five-year deal for... Four hundred thousand pound a week. Um, what are you doing? And, and yesterday they were talking about how this is um, uh, European football is is burning in flames, and 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 they simply haven't the money to, to carry on with this. It, the whole thing seems like a um, a bit of an oxymoron. It's a broken system. You hear the Real Madrid and Barcelona guys coming out saying, "Well, you know, we need financial fair play to be enforced better, and we need all these systems in place." It's like you don't want these systems in place. You want to be spending more money because you all you care about is winning and championships, and that's great. And guess what? Like you're not doing a very good job of spending that money to begin with because you're not doing all that great to begin with, right? But even if that was the case, you can't complain on the back end when you're losing hundreds of millions of pounds. And just wait, you guys probably know this, but just wait till the financials, uh, the accounts come out for next season with the COVID year. Everyone's talking about how bad they are this year, but that was only three months of COVID. It's going to be horrendous financials next year. So I I roll my eyes pretty hard at these owners and these clubs saying we're we're poor, we need more money. It's like, come on, guys, like make better decisions. I realize the system is difficult. You have powerful agents. Uh, you want to put the best players on the field. Like you can't just come out and say, I'm just going to spend no money and have success. I understand that, but like at least have some financial discipline. Is the the sort of overriding message that we do need some legislation to help these people then? Because as much as you say, it's, it's obvious, just days, as they've said, after all of this, clubs are, are starting to spend seemingly recklessly again. They seem to be making very bizarre decisions, even after the back of, of having made all of these comments. Does this underline that we need to, to have some legislation and, and how easy would that be to, to apply it to football? It's a good question. I mean, obviously you have EU, law, EU laws that are different than laws in North America when it comes to salary caps and salary restraints. You know, you know, Spain has a form of a salary cap structure, right? Where you can only spend a certain amount of your wages. You know, that hasn't stopped Real Madrid and Barcelona from bankrupting themselves, basically. But um, yes, I mean, of course, yes, the system needs something like that. And I think it's what I think is really interesting and also hypocritical is there, there was all this talk about the super league having strict cost controls in place. Like that was part of the, the discussion, right? It's like, we are going to get all this more revenue and we're going to keep our cost controls in place. And my thought process is like, okay, that's a rational conversation. Why isn't that conversation happening right now? Why isn't that conversation happening at the Premier league level, La Liga, Syria, uh, the French league? Like, why can't you have that conversation right now? And I think you need to start somewhere. I think what the EFL did during COVID was a start. And the question is, once COVID goes away, is it just going to go back to the way it was? And I think the answer is yes. Everyone sees it's going back to the way it was. So I don't know how it works legally. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know European Union law. Uh, I do 100% think something needs to be in place. Financial fair play is a joke. Uh, and even if it was enforced, it still allows clubs to lose tens of millions of dollars, which is just unfortunate. 
In terms of, of FSG at Liverpool specifically, then, I mean, there's been a lot of, of shouts after this of FSG out. You know, you've got to rally to, to get the owners out of the club. But I think it's important to point out that, sort of, certainly business wise, they have done a lot of good for Liverpool. They have a sustainable model, they've in, improved infrastructure, for example. They could be a lot worse owners for Liverpool than FSG. I suppose anyone shouting for, for FSG to, to move out. The difficulty is not that they have to move out and that would be hard enough on its own because they don't necessarily want to, but it's a case of, of who could afford to come in as well. I don't know how much Liverpool would be valued at, but you know the, the sorts of, of numbers suggest similar sorts of people would be the ones to, to come in and, and replace them anyway. Yeah, I think I read today that they're valuing Liverpool at $2 billion. So, I mean, you're looking at, uh, if you don't like FSG, what else is out there, right? I mean, uh, there's very few... I mean, there aren't individuals really that can, you're talking hedge funds, you're talking, you know, nation states that can, that can uh, afford that. You know, I, I agree. I think FSG has done a good job. I mean, they haven't done everything right, of course, but I think generally they have some pretty, they have good people in place. They run a good type business. They're very, they're, they're, they're efficient. They, they, they use data. Well, obviously they've had a pretty big misstep here. I know a lot of the Liverpool supporters want them to spend more money, but I mean, and that's the other problem, right? Is you have this, as much as you want to run a good business, your supporters are clamoring, spend more money, spend more money. And certainly they're Liverpool's having not a great season this year. And it's easy to say they haven't spent enough, but I think generally, um, you know, out of the 12 top clubs in this group, I think FSG, in my opinion, is certainly the best ownership group. And I realize people might disagree with that, but I think they do a good job from my perspective. Um, do you have pillars of, of kind of ownership and the way you approach, say, Helsing or yourself? So mm -hmm. you you have certain um, kind of things which you, you, you kind of live and die by in terms of how you own the club and everything else kind of falls around that. Yeah, we have kind of, I don't want to say pillars is not the right word, but like I'm a big believer in culture and that, that applies on and off the pitch. I think what was really interesting, you know, Helsinger was our first foray into a majority stake. You know, I, I had small investments in, in Swansea and Dundalk, but that was just more getting to sit in the owner's box and get to enjoy what was happening. But, um, you know, we bought a club that had incredibly poor culture, had been relegated. Players didn't want to be there. Fans didn't want to support the club. No one wanted to be there. And it's kind of jarring, right, to see that, that poor culture and that the way the organization was. And I think, um, you know, building that culture from the ground up and again that that you know, people ask how do you do that right so i think that's i mean i think you could say jürgen klopp has done that right it's hiring a manager who can motivate men you have a sporting director you have a ceo you have engaged ownership all who are going in the right direction and my philosophy from an ownership perspective and i think this is interesting how it applies to this current discussion is you know look the absentee ownership thing in european soccer does not work does not work period just hiding behind whatever pr statements or hiding behind someone else does not work supporters, players, coaches, everyone in your organization wants to see you. My, my philosophy is, look, you might not like every decision I make. You might think I'm a greedy American cutting costs or doing whatever, but at least I'm going to be out there. I'm going to tell you why I'm making the decision. I'm going to be accessible, you know, obviously within reason. I'm not going to engage with Twitter trolls, right? Um, but you know, I'm going to be able to explain myself. And in the end, I might admit, hey, you know what? I made a mistake. Or I might admit, you know what? Like, I think that actually worked out. And people might admit to me that made a mistake. But I don't think, and again, easier for me to say, we're a medium-sized club in Scandinavia. We're not at Manchester United here. But I think the same pillars can and should apply for bigger clubs. I think there's no reason John Henry shouldn't have come out before the announcement or while it was happening and saying, this is why we're doing it. You might not agree. You might think I'm an idiot. But like, this is why it's happening. Happy to answer any questions. This is what's happening. And I think that's all supporters and people who work for you ask for is just like communication. 
understanding why decisions are made and then, you know, moving on from there. So that's the way I look at it. I think communication has been a, a big issue for, for FSG generally, but I suppose on this particular issue of the European Super League, they couldn't really come out and say, we're planning this. What do you think? Because the answer would have been, well, what on earth are you thinking? Yeah, that you're right. You're hundred percent right. I think the only thing I can think of is once it was officially announced, they could at least have come out and tried to start to explain themselves. Now it's not just on them, right? It's on the, the larger group of clubs to come out with a narrative and some statements to come out. And I think, Everything happened so quickly, right? And it probably, I know it happened too quickly for them to kind of react, but there had to be some sort of strategy to come out and say, this is why we're doing it and this is what we're doing. Whether it didn't have to necessarily be John Henry, it could have been the CEO at Liverpool, it could have been someone else, you know, in terms of conversations with the coaching staff. You know, I think I think the, the moment that these clubs lost the plot was when, you know, Jurgen Klopp and coaches and players were coming out horribly against it i mean those are people that have massive credibility in and around this industry with the supporters with everyone and when they come out immediately saying yeah this is this is not a good idea that's a big problem these are your employees like at the end of the day i can make whatever decision i want but like if i come out behind the back of my coach and my players and my ceo and do whatever i want like there's gonna be a lot of unhappy people and guess what at some point they might just be like hey now nah, we don't want to work for this person anymore because they're not being gen- you know they're being disingenuous with us I don't know how much sort of experience you have of, of say, having a fan sort of representative on, on the board or anything like that. Do you think that would be a way forward for FSG to try and sort of get back into to Liverpool fans' good books, if you like, to sort of show that they do genuinely want to listen to fans? And, and maybe that could be a way forward that if they got a big decision to make, they actually get the fan input on this first, as obvious. <laughs> I mean, it, it should really be in place anyway, shouldn't it? It's that obvious. Yeah, I don't have experience with that. I mean, it, it's not a bad idea. I mean, I think obviously board level decisions are sensitive and there's a lot of things that go into that. Um, I think clubs usually that have supporter trust that own equity in the clubs usually do have board representation. So that is one idea that I'm certainly, if I was FSG, I would think about whether I wanted to do it or not. I think it's going to be difficult for them to win the trust back of the supporters. At the very bare minimum, they need to be having a dialogue, a very strong dialogue with supporters. And again, when I say... It's not just about the fans. Of course, they're a big piece of it, but it's your own employees, right? Your own staff, both on and off the pitch, your players, right? Um, people in and around the, your, your, the, the other board members, everyone in and around the club who was completely in the dark here. So I think there's a lot of different directions they can go, but the bottom line is they're going to have to do something pretty uh, significant to win trust back. I see already that the UEFA are thinking of or suggesting punitive action for, for the clubs that threaten to rebel. Do, do you think... That's something which is um, almost a, a threat which won't be carried through because ultimately UEFA, um, such as their anger at this, is because they know full well that having a Super League would have diminished their own product. But they also know that they need these clubs very much so to, to make sure that the Champions League is what they want it to be. And the same for the Premier League. So we've already seen a few things like um, the, the, the representatives on the subcommittees for the Premier League have for these clubs have been told that they will they've been asked to resign or face being forcibly removed but and will it go any further than than simple things like that or, or do you do you think that competitive uh, and financial um penalties are probably too far beyond what um, these these leagues would do i i don't think it'll go further i think once the kind of emotion settles down people will realize rationally that these guys shot themselves in the foot these clubs and they're they did enough damage to themselves that i'm not sure what further dam further punitive action would actually accomplish i think tabus came out this morning and basically said look we're not going to punish the clubs they've you know they've they punished themselves basically and so 
Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think you take the high road here if you're UEFA, if you're the leagues. You say, you know, obviously these guys, you need to put systems in place so this doesn't happen again. I think that's that's clearly what has to happen. I think huge fines or point deductions or all that kind of stuff. Like, I mean, that's just going to create a war inside these leagues, and that's the last thing I think anyone needs at this point. Just before we, we finished, I wanted to ask you about the new Champions League formats as well that have sort of been announced this week and the plans for, for that moving forward. What do you make of the plans that have been suggested and how different is that really to, to a European Super League? I mean, that's the thing, right? I mean, I think people ask, I just got asked earlier today, um, is this going to relaunch? Is a new? Are they going to try to do this again? I'm like, I don't think so. I think that it's just going to, it's going to happen what was always going to happen, which is the Champions League was going to be molded into a competition that was just even more heavily skewed towards the biggest clubs. And the question is, does the Champions League at some point turn into a competition where there are guaranteed spots for certain clubs? I think there's going to be a good amount of pushback for that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see. I know they, they reached an agreement before all this craziness happened. Does, do they go back and revisit that? Um, you know, more games, more spots, uh, ideally more value for the television partners. I mean, it's not... It's not ideal, but I don't think it's something that a lot of people are going to get crazy up in arms about. I think as long as it's still a merit-based system that's uh, tied into the domestic leagues where you have to earn your place, I think as long as that's like the general structure, then most people will be pretty content with the status quo. We'll see if that's if that continues, but that's the way I would see it. The clubs, it seems, involved in this sort of new Champions League will get more money in revenue, the amount of money that will go to, to all of the teams involved has gone up, I think, by around 1.3 billion euros compared to, to what it was before. Is, is that what this week was all about, do you think? Do you think it, it was, to a certain extent, a little bit of brinkmanship in, in terms of, of UEFA and just trying to squeeze a little bit more out of them? I think it might have started that way, but it turned turned into, turned into something way bigger than that. I think there's been people out there I've, I've seen saying, oh, this whole thing is was a negotiating ploy, right, to get a better cut of the you know, slice of the cut for the Champions League. And I mean, I, you know, this isn't Donald Trump playing three-dimensional chess here, right? I think this is uh, this was a, a very direct attempt to break away. And I think uh, I think there was ways they could have gone about this to try to push their negotiating power more. The, to me, this wasn't the way. And if they really were using this for all negotiating leverage, they're, they're more stupid than anyone thinks because this is crazy. I mean, I don't know how you can be John Henry and, you know, agree to something like this if it's a negotiating ploy. I mean, these owners are not going to be able to show themselves and their faces in these stadiums, I think, anytime soon based on what happened. Um, so I would be I would be really surprised if this was part of some sort of larger negotiating ploy. It may turn out that it works in their favor that way, which I'm not really sure if that's the case. I think it's all backfiring on them. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think that's what's happened here. Yeah, no, certainly. Something tells me we've not heard the last of the European Super League or certainly the repercussions of the European Super League idea. And of course, we'll be across them all as we have been over the last week or so across both Blood Red and the Liverpool Echo. But that is, I think, just about all we've got time for on the latest Bottom Line podcast. So thank you very much to, to Dave and to, to yourself, Jordan, for, for joining me. Really appreciate both of, of your time here. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. And if, of course, if you've not signed up to the Blood Red newsletter, make sure you do that in the link in the description. But until next time, from myself, Matt Addison, it's goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo.